Hello, everyone, and welcome to Valley West Cinemas. I'm your host, Aaron, and this is the podcast where we take a group of related films and eliminate all but three. Today's episode is going to be a little shorter than the last few because I'm all by myself. It's just me today. But I have my list and my red pen ready because today we're discussing the sequels from 1989. This list is not all-inclusive, but it's pretty close. There were about 19 theatrical sequels released in 1989. I am excluding six of them, or seven of them, right off the bat. There are some that have been discussed previously, and a few that will be discussed in future episodes, and so today we are not talking about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Back to the Future 2, Star Trek 5, Lethal Weapon 2, Halloween 5, Friday the 13th Part 8, or Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5. Those were all 1989, but we're not talking about them today, and so the films we're discussing today are The Fly 2, Fletch Lives, American Ninja 3, Blood Hunt, The Toxic Avenger 2, Police Academy 6, City Under Siege, Fright Night Part 2, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Eddie and the Cruisers 2, Eddie Lives, The Stepfather 2, The Karate Kid Part 3, Chud 2, Bud the Chud, and Ghostbusters 2. It almost goes without saying that what we're probably going to have to (laughs) repeat several times in this episode is that the first one was better. I don't have to look very closely at this list to see that there aren't a lot of good movies on here. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of sequels that are better than the original, because that's been discussed to death for decades. Everyone always goes to The Godfather 2 and and Aliens, or if they're quirky, they'll say Spy Kids 2, which is actually really good. In this instance, most of these sequels are definitely not better than their original films. But we'll talk about it. With this list, there are two obvious standouts as keepers, and so it's going to be a bit of a battle for the third surviving film. So let's go ahead and start eliminating a few things. I'm willing to bet that not a lot of these movies are really in the public consciousness anymore. 1989 was a long time ago, Even with Stranger Things and the sort of 80s resurgence, not everything can be a classic, you know? Not everything can come back. And a fair amount of these weren't successful when they came out anyway. And going off of IMDb scores, they aren't particularly loved either. So, eh, so let's cross a couple off. The first one I'm crossing off is The Toxic Avenger 2. And this one kind of hurts for me because it was made by Troma, and I'm a very big Troma Studios fan. Troma is a New York-based film studio that is known for making really low-budget trash movies, but they're sort of trashy on purpose. We've discussed on the show previously that there's a fine line between so bad it's good and knowingly bad, and Troma makes movies that are knowingly trashy, and some would say that they are not good movies, but they are trashy and dumb on purpose. That's the gag. And for every Birdemic 2 or Samurai Cop 2, where the makers try to capture the magic of the first sincere but awful original film, Troma is actually really good at making, quote, bad movies that are a blast. They are fun. Some of the movies Troma has put out are Pterodactyl Woman from Beverly Hills, Teenage Cat Girls in Heat, Surf Nazis Must Die, (laughs) one of my personal favorites, Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD, and of course the original Toxic Avenger and Class of Nukem High. Class of Nukem High is great. Of the Toxic Avenger series, Part 4, Citizen Toxie is my favorite. It is so over the top. There's a very long three-minute trailer on YouTube for Citizen Toxie. (laughs) If you want uh, a pretty fair idea of what trauma movies are like, I I recommend watching that. Take three minutes out of your day. It's not safe for work. An interesting bit of trivia with the Toxic Avenger series kind of ties into what Tara and I have discussed before, where as kids in the 80s, we had R-rated content that was advertised for us. They made toys of Starship Troopers and Terminator 2. They made Saturday morning cartoons of Rambo. This was back when nobody had a big ol' fit because, oh no, you're making violent movies for kids. 
eh, we we handled it just fine, I think. You know, it was it wasn't that big of a deal. And the Toxic Avenger is an R-rated. Actually, I don't even know if it's R-rated, but it is gruesome, very weird sexual content. And they made a Saturday morning cartoon of it. There is a Saturday morning cartoon called The Toxic Crusaders, where Toxie, Toxie is, originally he was Melvin, he was a nerdy janitor who was tricked into wearing a tutu, and he fell into some toxic waste, and so he became a superhero called the Toxic Avenger, who's this big, buff, mutated-looking guy. And in the Saturday morning cartoon, it's Toxie and his other mutant friends in the city of Tromaville trying to stop evil corporations, evil warlords, from polluting the world. It's very strange that they made a Saturday morning cartoon out of the Toxic Avenger, but you know what? The 80s and 90s were a strange time. It was pretty cool. Now, the Toxic Avenger 2, though, unfortunately, it's not any good. They filmed 2 and 3 together. Toxie goes to Japan. He is tricked into leaving Tromaville unprotected so that evil businessmen can come in. It's just not any good. And there are behind-the-scenes stories. It was problematic. There were language barriers, money issues. I don't think they really intended to film two movies. They ended up just shooting so much and not really knowing what the overall plan was. The shoot did not go well. And you can tell when you watch the movies. So as much as I love Troma and the Toxic Avenger series, I really mostly only love parts one and four in the cartoon. Two and three? Actually, you know what? Two and three are so disappointing that even the beginning of part four, when they do a bit of a recap, so you kind of know where the series is, sort of like a previously on, the narrator explains what happens in the first film and then says, and two crappy sequels followed. Sorry about that. So I'm crossing off part two. I do recommend part one and four. But make no mistake, these are genre, gross, trashy, rough, and absolutely fun movies. But definitely not for everybody. Next, I'm going to cross off The Stepfather 2. And if you spent any time in a video store as a kid, you would recognize the box art. The Stepfather movies, I think there were at least three of them, maybe even four. I know there's a remake recently, which was also awful. But they were video store staples. The problem is is that while part one was more of a suspenseful thriller, part two became more of a slasher. It was influenced more by everything else that had been going on in the 80s. I think Stepfather 2 was influenced more by the latter half of 80s horror and where you had, you know, Jason and Freddy and Michael Myers. And the slasher genre was really exploding. And so instead of having this sort of deeper, scarier film, they just went the slasher route. Terry O'Quinn, who uh, was on Lost, if you're, if you're familiar with the show Lost, he played Locke. He gives it his all. Even though the movie's trashy, he is 100% committed. He is doing Shakespeare while everyone else is doing a McDonald's commercial, you know? He's the best part of part one. He's the best part of part two. Part one, I think, has like an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, and part two has a 0%. That's the drop-off. In the series, Terry O'Quinn plays a crazy guy who usually murders someone and takes their identity, and he wants to be a family man, so he keeps moving into the suburbs and meeting a, a woman with a family, and he tries to become the stepfather, but his psycho tendencies keep coming out. Part one has a great poster with him looking in the mirror and written in the mirror, it says, who am I here? Because he keeps changing who he is. And in part two, he becomes a marriage counselor. (laughs) Sure. Okay. And of course, whenever things don't go his way, he freaks out. He kills a bunch of people. Part two is a bit of a rinse and repeat, which is actually a theme in a couple of these movies. It's really just more of the same. I very much recommend part one if you want to watch a good 80s thriller. So it has part one still has some of that sort of cheap 80s sensibilities. So if you're into 80s horror, check it out. Stepfather 2, Terry O'Quinn, he's great. He's always great, but eh, it's not a good movie. Let's talk about one people love, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Personally, for me, I don't love Christmas Vacation. 
I don't dislike it. I'm not saying it's bad. It just never completely clicked for me. But I can say that it is one of the three surviving films. Christmas Vacation is a beloved movie. It's a holiday classic. So many people watch this movie regularly around the holidays. There are so many great moments. The part with the cat, the part with the sled, cousin, well, I almost said cousin Randy, cousin Eddie, played by Randy Quaid. And my personal favorite is when Clark freaks out when he yells at everyone that they have to have a good time. There are a lot of great parts, and I think that's actually kind of symptomatic of the overall issue for me for the film is that there's not really an A to B storyline. There's not a goal, because in the first vacation, even though it is a road trip movie, and I generally don't care for road trip movies either, they at least had a goal. It's just trying to get to Wally World. Thankfully, it's not one of those holiday movies where the parent has a business meeting at the same time as his kid's recital and has to choose between his job and making his child happy, and he has to dramatically run while music plays to get to the recital on time so his kid doesn't see an empty seat. You know, that nonsense. Thankfully, it doesn't have that, but there's not really a plot. And the movie is clearly loved, but I'm just trying to figure out, like, why is it that maybe it doesn't entirely work for me? Chevy Chase is at his best in it, though. And speaking of parts, again, the scene at the department store where he's distracted by the saleswoman trying to get that big old tree into the house. There are a lot of funny parts in this. So even though I'm not a great defender of this movie, I am keeping it. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation is going to make it to the end. Speaking of Chevy Chase, Fletch lives. And this one, this one is not as easy to cut. I love the first Fletch movie. It is so funny. It is the perfect example of Chevy Chase. So if anyone wants to know what his comedy is like, what his movies are like, Fletch Part 1 is the default example. That is the movie that should be associated with Chevy Chase's career forever. That's the one. His deadpan delivery, his sarcasm, is perfect in that film. But Part 2, Fletch Lives, ah, uh, it came way too many years later. Comedy sequels shouldn't take five years. In the films, Fletch is a reporter who normally gets caught up in some big scandal. And in part two, he inherits a, a Louisiana estate and the realtor, I think it's the realtor, dies and he gets framed for her murder. And Fletch's whole deal is that he uses disguises. And they really double down on that in part two. It's not as balanced as the first film. The wit and the sarcasm just aren't the same in the second one. I don't know if his energy wasn't really in it. It has a high rating on IMDb, though. It has a 6.1, which is fair. It's not the greatest. It's out of 10. But a 6.1 is fair. My rule of thumb is that if it's at least a 6.2, then it's probably okay enough to watch. So it does skirt that line. I'm not crossing it off just yet because there is some goodwill from the first movie. It is still Chevy Chase. It's still the character Fletch. Normally in sequels, when you take the main character out of their element, that normally comes later. That normally comes later when they've run out of ideas. This is only the second film, and they've already taken Fletch out of his city. The success of the Fletch character is Chevy Chase and that deadpan sarcasm. I do think that if you don't care for the first Fletch, that you might actually like Fletch Lives a little more. The character is a bit of a likable jerk, and part two is a little sillier, just a little bit. Not, not too much, but it's a little sillier but it's not great. I'm not crossing off Fletch Lives yet, but I don't think it's going to make it. I am definitely crossing off The Fly 2. The first Fly, oh my god, with Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis and directed by David Cronenberg, he did have a bit of a resurgence in the last decade and a half or so. He made Eastern Promises. He made A History of Violence, which is fantastic. He recently made Crimes of the Future. He also made Dead Ringers. He made Scanners, which is so good. I love Scanners. In the 90s, he also made Crash and Existence. I love Existence. 
or existence, depending on how you want to say it. It's spelled very weird. That's a trippy sort of Matrix-like what-is-reality Canadian movie. Crash is not the best picture winner. David Cronenberg's Crash is the one where people become sexually aroused by car accidents. <laughs> it was one of the only NC-17 movies to get a fair theatrical release. Because if you don't know, there actually is a rating beyond R. The X rating was ruined by porno, and so they changed the X to NC-17. The problem with NC-17 movies is that it doesn't always have to mean sex. It can just be violence. Or even language. Clerks was originally given an NC-17 just because they say a bunch of bad words. But NC-17 is death for most movies. Because some movie theater chains won't carry NC-17 movies. Most newspapers, back when newspaper advertisements mattered, most newspapers won't carry ads for NC-17 movies. Most television stations won't play ads for NC-17 movies. It's basically censorship. A few times, like Henry and June, Showgirls, and Crash, a studio will take a risk with a real release that is NC-17, but it essentially failed. You may have seen headlines recently where the upcoming Marilyn Monroe movie for Netflix is going to be NC-17, but the thing is with Netflix and any other streamers, the rating doesn't matter. Do you care if a movie is PG, PG-13, R if it's on streaming? No one cares. So much of that is unrated anyway, they just don't bother rating it. So all these headlines about a Netflix movie being NC-17 is just PR. It's just promotion. The rating doesn't matter if it's on Netflix. Who cares? They're just trying to build up hype to let you know that it's naughty. When the reality is, is that rating should just mean that it's adult. Sorry, I got distracted by, <laughs> by David Cronenberg's crash. Back to David Cronenberg's The Fly... That's the one with Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, where Jeff Goldblum uses a telepod to transport himself, and he is teleported with a, a fly, and the fly DNA gets in his body and it slowly changes him. It's a dark, gooey, gross, scary, awesome movie. But when they made The Fly 2 in 1989, nobody came back. One actor came back, and that's it. None of the behind-the-scenes people, Cronenberg didn't come back, Gina Davis, Jeff Goldblum, nobody came back. And it's basically just a dumber remake of the first movie, which itself was also a remake of a 1950s movie. But in The Fly 2, Jeff Goldblum's son, he grows at a rapid rate, and so when he's 5 years old, he looks like he's 25, which makes the romance a little weird, but we'll try not to think about that. And of course, he slowly starts turning into a fly, which is just the exact same thing that happens in the first movie. In this one, there's an evil businessman and evil science because they're trying to keep him in a, in a facility to study him because, you know, of course they would. But they basically took this dark, gross amazing first film and kind of turned it into a worthless teen movie like a teenager movie kind of like i mentioned with the stepfather 2 being influenced by all of the other 80s slashers that came out the first fly was made for adults the fly 2 was made for teenagers they were going after a different audience there's no artistry behind it in the first film you could tell that there were choices being made that somebody was choosing to be this gross for this reason or to direct their actors to give this performance Here's an example of how lazy The Fly 2 is, even the marketing, okay? The first film, the tagline was, be afraid, be very afraid. The Fly 2, it was, be afraid, be very, very afraid. They just said very a second time. How lazy is that? But anyway, so I'm crossing it off. The next one I'm crossing off, I, I wish I wasn't, <laughs> and I might lose some people on this one, but Police Academy 6, City Under Siege. Over the last several decades, the love for the Police Academy movies has not grown. For a franchise with seven films and a multi-season cartoon and a live-action show, you would think that it would be more popular now, but it's kind of become a punchline. Nobody really likes Police Academy, and when it's referenced, it's almost in a, a derisive sort of way, because they're dumb. 
And also, too, kind of like the Saw or Paranormal Activity movies, the first six movies came out yearly. Every single year, there was a brand new movie. It wasn't two or three years in between them. It was every single year. And the movies were successful. They made money. Weirdly, only part one is R. I assume a lot of people, when you think about Police Academy, you think about dirty sense of humor, or people spying on, on women showering, gross out 80s humor, like Revenge of the Nerds. But only the first one was rated R. The second was PG-13, and the rest were all PG. They were basically kids' movies. Even the really gross Revenge of the Nerds, even part two was PG-13, because they saw how many kids, whether you agree with it being right or wrong, so many kids were watching these movies on home video when the video market exploded and HBO exploded, and so they geared them more towards kids. I don't love the first one. I don't care much for the first Police Academy movie, and I actually rewatched the whole series very recently. I liked parts two through five a lot. I genuinely laughed, not laughing at them because they're stupid. I actually laughed. They are funny movies. Two, three, and four, the ones that still have Steve Gutenberg, are the best. Five has its pluses. But I really like them. I really do. Six, though, is where it gets a little worse. <laughs> I can't really say that's where it gets bad because they were never great, but I would at least say that, okay, six is where it starts to get worse. It's really just more of the same, which is fine. I mean, every TV show is just more of the same when you think about it. It is a little cartoony. Mr. Big is a criminal mastermind whose gang is committing robberies all over the city, and of course, only the police academy cadets can stop him. The plot doesn't matter. You can put plot in quotes. It's, it, it, it's, it's inconsequential. With police academy movies, you know exactly what you're getting. <laughs> this is not high art. Part 6 is the first one to not open at number 1. Believe it or not, but Police Academy 1 through 5 all opened at number 1 at the box office. And while there were diminishing returns, 6 is where the real drop-off was. I do regret crossing off Police Academy 6. If Parts 2, 3, or 4 were on here, I would probably make a case to keep them. Maybe even Part 5, but Part 6. While I still enjoy it, that is the one where the sentiment of, okay, I'm kind of done with this, really kicks in, you know? So if you take anything from this, maybe revisit the earlier sequels. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to champion Part 6. Let's talk about Karate Kid Part 3. Now, I like Cobra Kai. That is a good show. I do get slightly annoyed that every dramatic beat is caused simply by a misunderstanding or somebody just not speaking up. That annoys me, especially when they do it over and over and over again across multiple seasons. But Cobra Kai is very enjoyable. And they have started bringing back characters from Karate Kid Part 3. I might lose some people here, so if you're a fan of the Cobra Kai show 2, because I am, hopefully I won't offend you when I tell you that Karate Kid 3 is the worst. It's one of the worst movies on this list. Maybe even say that Part 4, the next Karate Kid with Hilary Swank, is maybe even better. The comparison I make to the first three Karate Kid movies is the Ninja Turtles movies, the original live-action franchise. The quality of Part 1 to Part 2 to Part 3, that's how I look at Karate Kid, Part 1, Part 2, and Part 3. The drop in quality is the same to the point where Part 3 is barely watchable. Part 3 is terrible. Ralph Macchio is way too old. They should have taken an opportunity to age him up. Have Part 3 take place a few years later because he's a youthful guy. It's hard to even tell how old he is now. And back then, in the first film, playing a high schooler, he was already like 26, I think. By Part 3, you see wrinkles around his eyes. He's too old. They should have done a time jump. His attitude doesn't fit his age. It makes it very weird. The cartoon villain is actually kind of fun. He's sort of terrible, but in a good way. He's over the top. It's the kind of movie where the villains tilt their heads back and go, ha ha ha, and laugh as their scheme succeeds. He gives it his all. So, so I'll give it that. But 
watching Daniel, who we have enjoyed in parts one and two, who we have rallied for, you know, to watch him kind of turn into a bad guy, to kind of turn on Mr. Miyagi, that's not fun. And yeah, it all works out in the end, but I don't want to watch Daniel be tricked into being a bad guy. I don't want to watch my hero be a jerk. And it's not like other movies where good guys can turn into bad guys. It's not like a Walter White situation. The movie shows you that he is being manipulated. So there's no mystery here. This isn't character growth. This is just Daniel being manipulated into being a jerk. Pat Morita as Mr. Miyagi, he's always great, but they don't give him anything to do. I did like that the same director did all three movies. And so all three Karate Kid movies have the same visual look. They do feel like a continuation where it does almost seem like these movies all came out at the same time, even though they were years apart. Part three is just bad. I don't even own part three. I own parts one and two, but part three, no thank you. Cobra Kai, the show, is great, but Karate Kid 3 sucks. An easy one to cross off that nobody cares about <laughs> is American Ninja 3 Blood Hunt. Does anyone remember the American Ninja movies? I can't even imagine what it would be like now if somebody tried to come out with a movie even called American Ninja. The first two had Michael Dudikoff, who was sort of a rising star in the 80s. He was kind of an action star. He was one of those names and faces like Mark Singer, where he was kind of famous here and there. He had some success here and there, but if you don't love Beastmaster, you probably don't know who Mark Singer is. And if you don't love American Ninja, you probably don't know who Michael Dudikoff is. The point being that by part three, he didn't want to do them anymore. And so you have a new hero. And any time a franchise makes a sequel without the star of the franchise, it's usually a bad sign. And while American Ninja is not a classic, not really, it's not really held in great regard or conversation, it's at least enjoyable. There's a cheesy 80-ness, there's a fun to it, it's silly. There was a weird boom of ninja movies in the 80s, you know? But the first one has a 5.4 out of 10 on IMDb, which is, is fine for dumb 80s trash. American Ninja 3 only has a 3.6. It's about a bad guy called the Cobra who is engineering ninjas, I guess? If you want to talk about diminishing returns, Part 3 only made 900000 in theaters. It made next to nothing. If you want to watch any of these other 80s ninja movies, there's Ninja 3, The Domination. There's uh, Rage of the Ninja. There's Pray for Death. Pretty much anything with Shokusugi is pretty good. And none of those movies are amazing award winners either, but they're fun. There's a lot of joy to be had with this sort of cheese, you know? American Ninja 3 is dumb in a bad way, though. Watch part one, watch part two, don't bother with part three. They did bring Michael Dudikoff back for part four, but that one sucks too. Let's talk about a fun sequel though, and this one is a contender. I don't know if I'm going to cut this one or not, but Fright Night Part 2. Unfortunately, Fright Night Part 1 and 2 haven't really been readily available on home video. Part 1, there are DVD copies floating around, and some of those specialty labels like Shout Factory have been uh, trying to re-release it. I think they just announced a new 4K edition of part one. But part two is still pretty hard to find. At, at the time of this recording, good luck finding part two without spending a bunch of money. The first Fright Night is so freaking good. It's basically Rear Window with vampires. They did the Colin Farrell remake with uh, Anton Yelchin and David Tennant from Doctor Who. The remake, a lot of people really like the remake. I think it could have been good. Colin Farrell's great in it, but the problem for me is just visually... The movie is so dark, and they shot a lot of it as uh, Day for Night, where they film it, and then they darken the screen in post. I don't like the look of the film. Just visually, it's hard for me to watch it. The performances are there, and so they had a good movie, but I just don't like the way it looks. It bugs me. That aside, Part 1, the original Fright Night Part 1, and there's also another Fright Night Part 2, which is a sequel to the remake, so don't get confused. I'm sorry. <laughs> the 1980s Fright Night, 
1989, Fright Night Part 2. There we go. The first Fright Night, a high schooler thinks that his neighbor is a vampire. And of course, no one believes him, but of course he's right. And he ends up going to one of those late night cable hosts, which doesn't really exist anymore. It's not really a thing. If you know who like uh, Joe Bob Briggs is, that's probably the closest. Elvira used to be one as well. Even William Shatner did it for Full Moon. But he goes to one of those people who would host horror movies late at night on a cable channel. And the two of them have to team up to stop this vampire. And the vampire is played by Chris Sarandon, who voices Jack Skellington in A Nightmare Before Christmas. He was also the cop in the first Child's Play. In Fright Night 1, there's a mood to it. There's a rawness to the feeling of these teenagers and someone wanting them. And while they may want them you know, to drink their blood, there's also sort of a tease and a metaphor for virginity. It's really good. The first one is really good. Part 2, though, from 89, like, I would just sort of shrug and say, you know, it's, it's fine. It's not a bad film. It has a, a fairly high rating. It was relatively well-received. It only made about $3 million in theaters. It didn't really do very well. Part of the problem with Fright Night Part 2 is that it was heavily influenced by the success of The Lost Boys. And so while the first film is scary and funny, Part 2 goes more for just the funny and cool route. They upped the 80s gore. Part 2 lacks the cool factor and sexy factor of Chris Sarandon. I don't like that they took the main character and they put him in therapy to where he starts Part 2 not believing that Part 1 really happened. And so you're just basically back to square one. That's not interesting to me. It does uh, co-star Tracy Lind, who I had a huge crush on when I was like 12. Upon revisiting Fright Night Part 2, I was surprised that the main vampire was the lead actress from In the Mouth of Madness, the woman that goes with Sam Neill to the fictional town. I did not remember her in this at all. Like That's how forgettable the vampires are in Fright Night 2, which is kind of the problem. When they're going for that cool factor, like the, the Lost Boys 80s cool factor, it doesn't really work. They sort of abandoned trying to make it scary. The scares feel false, and the comedy feels forced. A lot of the comedy in the first film is, I don't believe you. <laughs> People laughing at this guy that thinks that they're vampires. A lot of the comedy comes from their reactions, and then their realization. You, there's a nervous laughter to seeing them realize that vampires are real. Friday Night Part 2 just goes for, oh, a windowsill fell on the vampire's fingers, and he falls out the window. Why did you make it this way? That being said, those complaints aside, as far as 80s horror, especially late 80s horror... I do like Fright Night 2. You can almost watch it in a bubble without part one existing. And that's one thing we haven't really talked about in this episode yet, is that normally whenever we do sequels on the show, my point of view is that we're eliminating movies from history. And so can you eliminate Star Wars but keep Empire Strikes Back when that doesn't really make sense because Empire Strikes Back makes no sense without Star Wars. But then you have movies like Terminator 2 that do completely stand alone, where they give you everything you need to know without having seen the first film. With this list, I'm kind of ignoring that because we don't have the option of keeping the original. But Fright Night 2, you pretty much can watch it without Part 1, since tonally it's way different. Part 1 is the better film. I am keeping Part 2 for now because most of my complaints are that it's not like Part 1. Which, you know, is my own personal disappointment, sure. But that in itself doesn't make Part 2 bad. Part 2 is it's pretty good. I'm not going to throw my fist in the air and tell people they need to watch Part 2, and I'm not buying a t-shirt with Fright Night Part 2 on it. But there are definitely much, much worse movies out there from the 80s than Fright Night Part 2. So I'm hanging on to it for the moment. It might make it. I don't know yet. One that is definitely going to survive is Ghostbusters 2. This one is hard, though. It was a full five years from Ghostbusters 1 to 2. I do like Vigo. He is Vigo. And Peter McNichol as the, the museum guy with a weird accent. He's a blast. And I like the look of Vigo. 
There are a lot of great parts in part two, but the problem with Ghostbusters 2, and this is why it kind of hurts, because part one is one of my all-time favorite movies. It's on my list. I love part one so much. Part two is just kind of a letdown. Even when it came out in 89, audiences and critics didn't really like it. That's one of the reasons there never was a true part three. That's why such a beloved franchise never had another movie, because part two, well, not for like 30 years, but part two was such a disappointment. A lot of part two was shaped by the cartoon, though. If you remember, and actually I did not plan on bringing up Saturday morning cartoons so often in this episode, but there was a show called The Real Ghostbusters. I loved that show. That show was a blast. And it was huge. There were toys. There were lunchboxes. My generation loved that show. There were video games. And some of that show shaped Ghostbusters 2. That's how popular it was. I don't know that that was necessarily a good idea because part one, if you haven't watched part one as an adult, go back and check it out. I mean, there's a part in Ghostbusters 1 where a ghost uh, performs a sex act on Dan Aykroyd. Bill Murray's nonchalant sarcasm is so hilarious in that movie. You can kind of tell that he didn't want to be there in part two. And a lot of what Bill Murray has done, he just doesn't want to be there. But they took the sarcasm and wit and edge of part one, and they made part two a little more kitty. And weirdly, they kind of ignore the heroism because in part one, everyone clearly saw the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and what the Ghostbusters did. And in part two, they frame it like the city sued them and everyone hates them and nobody believes in ghosts anymore. That's a bit of a leap. They could have put the Ghostbusters in dire straits, but this idea, this sort of, well, kind of like the main character in Friday Night 2, this sort of reset to where the city doesn't believe them anymore? There was a giant marshmallow man, for crying out loud. I did like the part with the Statue of Liberty. As a kid, I really liked the part at the end where Rick Moranis is shooting the slime-covered museum, and when it breaks apart, he thinks that he's responsible, and he starts smiling and yelling that he's a Ghostbuster, and people start cheering him. As a nerdy kid, that part always made me feel really good. He thinks that he's a hero, and he's so happy about it. I like that. I like that a lot. If I had to sum up my complaint for part two, I would say that the film doesn't give you a reason to revisit these characters in those moments in their lives. And what I mean by that is, nothing about the characters' lives motivates the story. And yeah, they do the silly thing where uh, the pink slime gets on the baby carriage. It sets everything in motion, sure. But in part one, you see their lives... You see their beliefs and the path that they get put on. They're everyday men just doing the right thing. They're basically exterminators that end up in this position. If you watch from them establishing the Ghostbusters to having to climb 80 flights of stairs to save the world, not a lot of time passes. They just sort of get thrust into this. And so in part two, when we see Vankman hosting a psychic TV show and Harold Ramis performing experiments on married couples... Nothing that's in their lives motivates them to the actions that they take other than Sigourney Weaver's character Dana asking them to. There's nothing that motivates them along this path. Ray and Winston being ridiculed at a birthday party. If their desperation led them down this path, that would have been different. But it's not through any of their actions that the story progresses. It's just because Slime happened to get on one of their friend's baby carriages. And that's it. So why am I keeping it? Well, it's still Ghostbusters, (laughs) right? It's a very watchable film. Like if you throw on Toxic Avenger 2 or Police Academy 6, you might just sort of get grumpy halfway through and wonder why you're watching it. That doesn't happen with Ghostbusters 2. It is still immensely watchable. Annie Potts is a lot of fun. Harold Ramis is the best. Bill Murray is still Bill Murray. As terribly disappointing as it is, it's not one of those movies that you regret watching afterwards. I can put it on right now and spend the next two hours watching Ghostbusters 2 and not be mad at myself for it. Because it's still the best made movie on this list. 
One real quick bit of uh, racism, maybe? I don't know. One thing that I always thought was weird as a kid was that the poster for part one only features Harold Ramis, Dan Aykroyd, and Bill Murray. Ernie Hudson is not on the poster. And I can kind of see that argument only because his character kind of comes into the movie way late. He really only participates in the ending. It was almost meant to be like a cameo for Eddie Murphy. The role is supposed to be for Eddie Murphy. So Winston shows up, he does the job interview, he drives around once with Dan Aykroyd, and then he pretty much just participates in the ending. And that's it. Most of my generation's familiarity with Winston is from the cartoon. That's where he became a real character. So he's not on the poster for part one. So okay. He is on the poster for part two, but his name isn't. Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, Dan Aykroyd, Rick Moranis, and Sigourney Weaver, their names are all on the poster, but Ernie Hudson's name isn't. So he's not on the poster for part one. His name isn't on the poster for part two. I always thought that was a little weird. I don't know. So that only leaves two movies. One of them is a maybe, and one of them is definitely crossing off. The one I'm definitely crossing off is Chud 2, Bud the Chud. Chud is an acronym for Cannibalistic Humanoid Underground Dweller, Cannibal Monster People Who Live in the Sewers. At the end of part one, you find out that Chud actually stands for something else, but they abandoned that completely in part two. In part two, it's just Cannibalistic Humanoid Underground Dwellers. And while they're sort of monstery in part one, in part two, they look more like zombies. It's just dark makeup around people's eyes. The first Chud movie is a little bit darker. It's more about the dangers to the homeless in 1980s New York. It has more of a feel closer to Alligator, if you ever saw that movie with Robert Forster. Part two is straight comedy cheese. The tonal shift from part one to part two is significant, even more so than Gremlins. Gremlins 1 to Gremlins 2, there's a huge difference in those movies. Chud 1 to Chud 2 is way beyond that. They go from a dark horror mystery to just genuinely silly, dumb horror comedy. There's really no horror to it. And it also has teenagers stealing a body to to do a prank. I don't know if this was an 80s thing, but what is with these movies and people stealing dead bodies to do a prank? I don't know anybody that ever did that. (laughs) But whatever. It stars Garrett Graham from Child's Play 2, from Phantom of the Paradise. He's done a whole bunch of stuff. If you are a genre fan, you probably recognize him. He plays Bud the Chud. He gives it his best. He became popular in these types of movies for a reason. He's very good at playing uh, dead people. (laughs) Zombies, I guess. I I would almost be tempted to keep Chud 2. It's a shame that it's even a sequel to the first Chud because they are so radically different. Imagine a comedy with zombies walking around making grunts at each other. It's, It's dumb. It's so dumb. Often what makes a horror movie bad is when it tries to be scary and it ultimately is just boring. You can only follow somebody wandering in the dark for so long before you just say, get on with it, you know? Chud 2 never tries to be scary. (laughs) They just don't even bother. And that's what makes it kind of enjoyable. It's bad but good, if that makes sense. Not like so bad it's good. It's just, imagine if Austin Powers was a horror movie. If Chud 1 was on here, I'd probably keep it. Chud 2 is just so darn silly. If you watch part one and say, oh man, I want to see the next one, (laughs) you're going to be in for a shock. I am crossing off Chud 2. There's a fine line between silly good and silly awful, so it depends on your own tastes, but you know, it's not terrible. It's stupid, but you know, not terrible. The last movie we have to talk about is a contender. It's one that we might keep. I might keep this one. Eddie and the Cruisers 2, Eddie Lives. This is a franchise that never comes up. I never hear anybody talk about Eddie and the Cruisers. For me, this was a childhood staple. We had part one and two recorded off of TV on VHS, and we jammed out to the soundtracks. That's a great soundtrack. Eddie and the Cruisers is about a rock star whose car goes off of a bridge, I think it was, and he's assumed dead. But the reality is is that he faked his death because he was tired of being famous, 
but he can't fight the music. And so he keeps wanting to make music. And in part one, there's a reporter who's trying to find out if Eddie is really dead or not, because there's new recordings or the recordings that are presumed to be new that sound just like Eddie. And Eddie is trying to hide his identity. And in part two, a full six years after part one, Eddie is living in Canada, or at least it feels like Canada. Part two especially feels like a Canadian soap opera. Part two follows Eddie more as he forms a new band. Why would you start a new band and play festivals if you're trying to hide who you are, if you're trying to hide your identity? That's kind of silly. Part two works better without part one, but the idea is kind of neat because this is a, it's a different kind of music story. There are a bunch of other movies about people trying to become famous, become singers, become rock stars. This is about somebody who was famous and is trying to hide his identity, but still make music. That's kind of cool. Nobody cared. Part two only made $500,000 in theaters. And it has sort of a cheap Canadian soap opera look, like I said, but that kind of adds to the appeal. There's a sort of made-for-TV cheapness that's appealing to Eddie and the Cruisers, too. It's almost like it allows you to have more fun with it because they're not trying to make it seem like it's so serious. There's a lot of melodramatic speeches about what the music means to you, and I knew who you were. And Eddie has, like, this dumb mustache, as if that will, <laughs> as if that will hide his identity. The concert scenes are really fun. If you don't mind movies taking three-minute breaks every once in a while just to show people jamming out on a stage. The music is good. I like the music. Part one ends with you finding out that Eddie really is alive. And in part two, it's Eddie and his little garage band playing festivals and becoming famous again. And spoilers, I guess, at the end, he admits that he's Eddie. And it's just sort of melodramatic soap opera pleasure. So many movies, and I've said this before on other shows, but like, I generally dislike biographical films or biopics. That is my least favorite genre because it's always about some famous person who was on drugs. Boo-hoo, I'm so rich and famous, my life sucks, I'm going to do a bunch of drugs. That's not interesting to me. I don't want to watch some rich person cry themselves to sleep in their money. You know, that doesn't do anything for me. For Eddie and the Cruisers, which granted is not a real person, it's not a biopic, but the same kind of formula, the same kind of idea as like Bohemian Rhapsody in a sense where you follow the path to fame for this musician, it's never boo-hoo, poor me, I'm on drugs. It's just about the music. You just get to see the complications of their lives. It's, it's, it's good. I like it. With me keeping National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and Ghostbusters 2, that leaves Fright Night 2, Eddie and the Cruisers 2, and Fletch Lives. The easy one for me to cross off is Fletch Lives. Part 1 is so much better, and I just don't care for Part 2. I, it's, it's, it's fine, but it's, it's not one that I ever would want to watch. I would just watch Part 1 again. Eddie and the Cruisers 2 and Fright Night 2, I would probably watch Part 1 first, not even probably. I'd watch part one first, but I would still want to watch the sequels after. With Fletch, I'll watch Fletch and then stop. So between Fright Night 2 and Eddie and the Cruisers 2 is actually pretty tough. I hate to say it because if you look at both of these series, the one I love the most is part one of Fright Night. Fright Night 1 is a great horror movie. It really is. I don't love Eddie and the Cruisers 1, but I love Fright Night 1. But the wannabe Lost Boys and comedy of Fright Night 2, ah. Uh, I hate to say it in a way that sounds so negative, because Friday Night 2 is watchable. It's a watchable film, for sure. There's a lot of garbage horror in the 80s, and Friday Night 2 is solid. But between these two sequels, I'm going to cross off Friday Night 2. And so, now playing this week at Valley West Cinemas are National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Ghostbusters 2, and Eddie and the Cruisers 2, Eddie Lives. What do you think? Let us know on Twitter at VWestCinemas or Instagram at ValleyWestCinemas underscore podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash ValleyWestCinemas podcast. And of course, please rate and review. That helps us a bunch. I'm your host, Aaron. 
Thank you for listening.